Remember that old show, Eight is Enough? Well, hopefully this isn't the last episode of Mosin at Large, even though it's episode eight. We're going to be talking about food, food you love, food you hate. Be prepared to salivate and gag. We'll have some tech news and comment in the mix as well. Mosin at Large Podcast. To be in touch, Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. You can attach an audio clip to that email or just write something down. And you can also call the listener line. Call us now. 864-60-MOSIN in the United States. That's 864-606-6736. I hope you have had a marvelous week. I have had another very busy, frenetic and marvelous week. Been flying around the place, speaking at conferences and flying back again and attending meetings and everything. So this is the first weekend I've had at home in its entirety for three weeks now. So three weeks on the trot, actually, uh, going hither and yon. And so it's nice to be back. And what did I do? How did I spend the weekend? Absolutely engrossed and enthralled in the Brexit drama that seemingly never ends in the United Kingdom. It is the first time that they've had a Saturday sitting of Parliament since 1982. And when that happened, it was because of the Falkland Islands War. They had another one in the 50s because of the Suez Crisis, I believe. And they had another one at the beginning of World War II. So Saturday sessions of Parliament in the UK are extremely rare and defying all expectations, really. Boris Johnson came back with a slightly modified version of the Brexit agreement, which came up with an alternative to the original Irish backstop arrangements. And everybody thought, oh, Boris is going to run down the clock. Actually, that's something that annoys people. I hear people complaining about this on all the various BBC feedback programs. Why do people people call this particular prime minister by his first name? And it's a fair point. Anyway, so Mr. Johnson defied expectations and he came back with this modified deal and he said dude he said dude there's your deal now buy it and then there's a a bit of a parliamentary geek by the name of oliver letwin who's been responsible for a few things not just in this brexit drama but uh, throughout his parliamentary career he's had uh, successes and not successes But um, he has come up with this amendment which requires the government to go for a negotiated extension to allow for Parliament to scrutinise properly this deal that the Prime Minister has brought back without the risk of running out the clock. And that meant that, so he basically uh, moved an amendment which changed the substantive motion, replaced the substantive motion. And that meant that when that amendment passed by a 16-vote majority, they couldn't move on to have the original vote they were going to in the first place. In other words, they have made really no progress at all. No progress at all. And I lost all that sleep for that. It's just the political drama that keeps on giving for... People like me who are fascinated by history and who enjoy all that parliamentary procedure tomfoolery and just fascinated by how are they going to extricate themselves from this. It is just so incredible to watch. And of course, John Burko, he's just so flamboyant. He's the 
while he's the outgoing Speaker of the House of Commons, he's only got a few days to run in the role. But he's controversial. He has, depending on your perspective, either stood up for the rights of members of Parliament or he's gotten in the way of the duly elected government. It all depends on your perspective, as I say. But he's certainly flamboyant. He had a very bad throat a couple of weeks ago. I was listening to him in Parliament and he did not sound well. And I'm, I'm honestly not surprised because the way he talks, it can't be good for his old vocal cords. It cannot be good. But he certainly has a turn of phrase about him. Does John Burko? Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Now. And uh, I, I've just found this whole thing fascinating, right? From seeing the debate on the referendum go down and the vote that enthralling night and everybody was expecting a remain vote and then everybody sort of thought, hmm, this is not going to be quite as conclusive as we originally thought. And then that that dawning realisation, oh my word, they really have voted to leave. And it's just been fascinating to watch this. I just find it enthralling. And so there will be more drama to come. And in the meantime, they've had this massive protest, another one in the UK, uh, in London, where the multitudes from all over the country have come to ask for another vote. We've had referenda like this in New Zealand as well, fairly significant constitutional referenda governing our electoral system. And I have to say, I think we handled it quite well. So we had two separate votes. And I think this would have solved a lot of argy-bargy if Britain had done this one the same way. So when there were people who were agitating for a referendum on our electoral system, the way we elect our parliament, we had... Two, the first one said, do you want to change the electoral system or not? Yes or no? And if yes, which system out of all of these systems would you pick as your top choice? And so we collated those numbers and the majority voted, yes, we do want to change the system. And then a second referendum after legislation had been drafted, which made it very clear exactly how the new system would work. There was a second referendum which put the status quo up against the new proposal that had been drafted. So if Britain had had an indicative referendum in 2015, do you want us to investigate leaving the EU or not? And that had gone 52-48 in favour. Then they would have done their little... um, negotiating with the EU, got what they considered to be the best deal possible, and then they would have come back and said, okay, here's the new deal. Do you want this or not? And in fact, that's what some people are now asking for. It it doesn't seem particularly unfair to me because there's a lot of ambiguity about what actually people were voting for, and I'm not taking a particular side on this question. I'm just merely saying that there was a lot of ambiguity in 2015. When I pull one of these all-nighters, you know, or when there's some major political thing of consequence, you've got to get serious about it. I have all these feeds coming in on the mixer and you fade the different coverages up and down. Marvellous. Although, really, it's not so important in a situation like the House of Commons coverage because everybody's got the same... Everybody's got the same coverage going. The BBC News Channel, the Sky News Channel... What I found interesting, though, and this seems to me to be an incredible deficit on the part of the Bibbibzib, no radio station was covering it live. No radio station had 
the proceedings of the House of Commons or had journalists covering it live because Radio 4 just does what Radio 4 does. Radio 4 really never gets into breaking news, does it? Unless, um, you know, someone from the royal family dies or something like that. Everything just keeps on keeping on on Radio 4. And then they have Radio 5 Live, which is supposed to be about breaking news and things. But uh, it's also about sport. And because Parliament was sitting on a Saturday and the Rugby World Cup is on, they decided that the Rugby World Cup was more important. And it's extraordinary, really, because as far as I could tell, Radio 5 Live Sports Extra which is an overflow station that they have when there's so much sport on that they need something else, that was vacant. So it's it's incredible. I guess it just perhaps speaks to the degree of Brexit fatigue that has now reached the UK. That you've got the significant thing, the first Saturday sitting since 1982, 1982, that's a good Randy Travis song, and there's no radio coverage of it at all. So um, anyway, who knows where it's going, but it's absolutely extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary to watch it go down. Now, we have been talking a lot about technology over the last little while, and that's not particularly surprising because we've had the new iPhones, we've had a new version of iOS that has created quite a bit of controversy. It's still pretty buggy. I stuck with the betas thinking at this stage in the cycle, the new betas are going to introduce improvements. That's not actually necessarily the case. There's one particular bug in the current beta, which is making it very, very difficult for me to work. And I really wish I had got off the beta bandwagon, but I foolishly thought that Things would improve over time, so I'm stuck. So we have been talking a lot about technology, and Google had its event, and so we'll probably talk a bit about Google's events uh, sometime during the show as well. But I, when I started turning the Mosin Explosion into the Mosin at Large podcast, I, started, I wanted to make it clear to people that we're not just going to be focusing on technology all the time. And so I thought we'd have a bit of a fun discussion today, inspired by a call we got last week from Robin Christofferson. And Robin talked about his peanut butter and banana sandwich, which just completely grossed me out. Oh, my word, it completely grossed me out. And so I thought we could talk a bit about this in a number of ways. First, just your favorite and least favorite food. Now, I don't want you to give me a big, long list of all the foods you like and all the foods you don't, because that's kind of naff, you know. I want you to be decisive. It's like another question we had a few weeks ago where, you know, I asked people to to be decisive and not give me a big, long list, because that's easy. If you had to pick one food that you really could never get enough of, that's just your most favorite food in the whole wide world, what would it be and why? And similarly, if there's one particular food, it could be a dish comprising a bunch of food types. Or it could be one particular thing. For me, it's tomatoes. I hate tomato. I hate the taste of it. It drives, it just, ugh, ugh, ugh. tomato, just, just the thought of it sets me on edge. Do you have a food like that? It just whenever someone serves it up to you, you just you just have to say, even if you've been brung up proper, even if you've been brought up to 
be polite. You just cannot eat this for fear of puking your guts out in front of your guest. Or your host even, if you're being hosted. So tomato is that for me. Do not give me tomato. It is absolutely disgusting. My favourite food, by the way, in the whole wide world, would be crayfish. I love crayfish. I could never imagine myself being full up on crayfish, not the least of which is because it's expensive, dude. It's expensive. but uh, And it's also quite difficult to get at the meat of a crayfish. It's pretty gross, actually, trying to get at the meat of it. And you're sort of, oh, mm, mm, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not good. But, oh, my word, it is just so tasty. I love crayfish. It's divine. So there you go. Those are my two. The other way that we might look at this that's quite fun is the things that people used to take to school. I mentioned last week that occasionally I would have Marmite and chip sandwiches. So the chips, you know, as in crisps, potato chips in a bag with Marmite kind of mm, smothered in Marmite. And and, uh, I know Marmite is a very acquired taste. One of the funniest things I read in a long time was Sarah Palin going on about Vegemite in her autobiography. So Marmite and Vegemite are sort of similar. I also remember being told that my oldest sister used to like sauce sandwiches or tomato ketchup sandwiches. She would just have pieces of bread smothered in tomato sauce or ketchup. And that's what she would like to take to school. That is disgusting too. Yes. Sarah Hillis says, my favorite food is lovely battered fish. Like from a chip shop. Oh, mmm. I'm a bit partial to the old fish and chips myself, Sarah. Nice. Don't do the battered fish anymore. Because it's full of carbs. But yes, I get that. And uh, you know, though, the thing that I discovered when I first went to England was mushy peas. You go to these fish and chip shops there and they have mushy peas. Oh, my God, they're disgusting. Anyway, she she concludes to, to really give you a kind of a you can almost taste the battered fish with her detailed description. She says, crunchy, greasy goodness. The food I can't stand, says Sarah, is avocado. Yuck! Says Sarah. I'll have your avocado, Sarah. Jolly good for you. We've had a bit of a shortage of avocado in New Zealand and they got really expensive for a while. Uh, They're great for people on ketogenic diets, avocado. Full of good, healthy, nutritious But here's Andy. He says, uh, I'm tuned in. Favorite food? You're going to kill me. Oh, my God. Soup. I'm not even kidding. Clam chowder, any kind, is probably my favorite, but I'll eat any soup, really. Worst food? Cheese. I can't stand it. Except... On pizza. When I was a kid, I'd take it off of that too. So he'd take the cheese off his pizza too. I know, I'm insane, says Andy. Brian Gaff of Chessington 
who tells me a number of things. Let me let me get the non-controversial one out of the way first, I think. He says that the 19th of October is apparently the scouting movement's jamboree on the air. Where radio hams are allowed to let them talk on the various bands via portable stations at camps. That's cool, isn't it? Praise the Lord and bash the jamboree. I know that's that's not right. Anyway, that's cool. What do you know we're talking about? Scouts and things. And she, she was asking me if I was ever a scout. And I didn't get to as far as scouts. I was a cub. I think you are aged between 8 and 11 when you want to be a cub. And they sort of sent me along to cubs. And I remember getting all these different badges for things. It wasn't really my thing very much. But I do remember something about a cub does his best and something, 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 and does a good turn every day. And I remember that the leader of, you have you had packs, didn't you, in the cubs? And the leader of the cubs, of your cub pack was called Arkayla. I think. Don't remember much more about it than that. It wasn't, as I say, it wasn't kind of my thing. But it was interesting in the sense that I was going to a school for the blind. And uh, so it was a chance to meet with sighted kids. So that was quite interesting. All right. Here's an, an, another controversial one from Brian. I was just wondering, as you have picked up so many new listeners of late. What? Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Whether it might be time to tell us all what your problem is with soup. I'm an awkward person to cook for, says Brian. I'm one of those who never liked food much and would be happy if most of it came as a pill. However, my pet hate is ham, which is oversalted, so to me, it tastes vile. Most liked? Well, at the moment... It's damson jam sandwiches. Ooh, the sugar and carbs and all things nice. I know I'm weird, but this would be a boring planet if we were all the same. Thought for the week on Braille, says Brian. Can you use the ER contraction in the word viceroy? No, because it goes across syllables, Brian. That's the thing. We've got a company I might talk a bit about later. Uh, called MediaWorks, and they run a thing called NewsHub, and some of the browser translators I use mess it up. So it's NewsHub, N-E-W-S, Hub. So you shouldn't use the S-H contraction because it cuts across syllables, but I do see in some of the browser translating I'm using, it's N-E-W-S-H, U-B, NewsHub. <laughs> I was taught, says Brian, that a contraction should not bridge syllables. There you go. Yet I used to have a friend who lived in Viceroy Lodge, and the Renib, the RNIB, used to send him Braille invoices with the ER contraction in it. Well, then he should refuse to pay. <laughs> That's what I'd do. Anyway, back to your very controversial point. Well, it shouldn't be controversial, though, should it? When he asks me, what is it precisely about soup? There we go. The production crew's on it now. What is it about soup? That I don't like. I mean, that's kind of like asking about what is it about climate change that you don't like? Or what is it about being buried in a pile of boiling mud that you don't like? I mean, wh where do you go with this? The thing about soup is that it comprises 
usually yummy things like chicken. You know, I, I, I enjoy sitting down often to a nice plate of cold chicken, for example. It's really nice. Or some warm chicken. That's fine, too. But, you know, cold chicken slices of meat or turkey, you know, not not the processed stuff like you get in America all the time, but the kind of Christmas turkey you get, or the, I guess in the States, the Thanksgiving turkey, that's nice. So then they turn it into this disgusting sludge and suddenly you're not chewing on something nice and tasty. You're kind of spooning it into your mouth. Why liquefy? something that's perfectly fine, solid. Why? It just makes everything taste so gross and disgusting. And the other thing is, it's often a way of disposing of stuff that would probably not be particularly edible in any other circumstance. So you really don't know what you're getting when you sort of spoon this disgusting sludge into your mouth the other thing about soup too is a lot of it contains tomato because of um, how cheap it is to put in there and, you know, it adds flavor. And that just makes me rich, the taste of the tomato. And vegetables. I mean, when you're eating the actual vegetable, there's nothing like biting into, you know, a nice salad or, I don't know, celery or carrots to some degree, although carrots are a bit carby, so I don't do that. Or potatoes, they're also carby, right? But 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 biting into those, there's something satisfying about it and you get the fibre and, you know, it, it helps you to digest them and all those good things. And then they're just turned into this disgusting hodgepodge of sludge and fed to you. Why turn perfectly good solid food into that disgustingness why it's the most disgusting thing ever don't do it and don't give it to me and then you have these books called chicken soup for the soul what the hell chicken soup for the soul why don't they just call it like you know arsenic for the ages or something Jonathan at mushroomfm.com if you want to be in touch on the email with an audio attachment like Beth has done. Hello, Jonathan, everybody. This is Beth from Virginia where we're needing rain. So if anybody has some to spare, please send it our way. I'm dropboxing it to you, Beth. We have been deluged. Deluged, we are. Yes, deluged. So we'll we'll get some in the dropbox for you. situation here. Mm. 60s and 70s for the temps Fahrenheit, so very nice, but very humid. Mm. Now to our favorite topic, food. Yes, childhood favorite foods. My parents owned a photography shop when I was just a little bitty thing, and I remember with great fondness, my mom would make me lunch consisting of a fried egg sandwich on toast with ketchup. Yes, you heard me right, ketchup. Oh, I can still taste that. It was so good. Ketchup was the thing that made it. Oh, man. And I was discussing a particular food the other day with someone who grew up on Cape Cod. And this food apparently was, maybe still is, a New England um, favorite. Really a staple. Especially for 
kids. And it is called a fluffer nutter. F-L-U-F-F-E-R-N-U-T-T-E-R. Rectin. It's a sandwich. What you do is you get yourself two slices of bread. You spread peanut butter on one and, no, not banana, marshmallow cream on the other one. Oh. You slap them together and you got oh. a sandwich. And you thought <laughs> peanut butter and banana was bad. In order for it to be a fluffer nutter, mind you, you have to use a particular kind of marshmallow cream. Not just any will do, you see. Yeah. It's a whipped product called Marshmallow Fluff by the Durkee Company. D-U-R-K-E-E. So, you learn something new every day. You do. Now for my tech question. What is your view generally on note takers? I am not against them at all. I say yay for choice. And I think they're still needed. In fact, yours truly is considering very seriously getting one. And my choices are either the Hims, I almost said fluff, I got food on the brain now, <laughs> the Hims Polaris or the Humanware Touch Plus. I'm leaning toward Humanware because I love Keysoft and also their version of Android is far ahead of Hims. But what are your thoughts? Please, on note takers. Well, maybe somebody else who has had experience of either of those devices might be able to chime in, Beth, and give you some first-hand accounts of how they're going. I would not use one personally, but I agree with you. The market sorts these things out, and if people want them, then people will continue to manufacture them. I personally am just uh, thrilled with using my iPhone and my Braille display, and I use that um, combination all the time for a wide range of things. I have given two very lengthy speeches in the last couple of weeks, 40 and 50 minutes, and just used Voice Dream Reader and the iPhone with my Focus 40 Bleu, fifth generation, and I'm extremely happy with that. But yes, let's get some comments on perhaps a comparison between those two. Have you used one or the other, or even more conveniently, both of those? What do you think of them? And what is the place for devices like this in 2019? Daniel B. Fry is back. He says, as for food preferences, it's a harder question. With the ketogenic diet, always gone keto as well, you see, my options are a bit more limited. My least favorite food is okra. What is okra? I'm not sure what okra is. I've heard of it and I've probably eaten it. Soup drinker. What is okra? Okra, Abel moschus esculentus, known in many English-speaking countries as ladies' fingers or okra, is a flowering plant in the mallow family. It is valued for its edible green seed pods. The geographical origin of okra is disputed, with supporters of West African, Ethiopian, and South Asian origins. The plant is cultivated in tropical, subtropical, and warm temperate regions around the world. Well, that was most informative. Thank you, Drinker. Uh, and just don't feed it to Daniel B. In addition to the terrible taste, says Dan, unpleasant texture, and offensive smell, it was an offering on our grandparents' country rural menu as a child. When it was forced upon me, it truly bothered me because I knew 
that it would be a battle of wills before I'd finish the okra negotiations and be permitted to leave the table. Yeah, that's sad, isn't it, when you have food that brings back associations like that, so I completely understand. You do bring to mind, and I guess I'm somewhat taking a bit of a privilege as a host to introduce another food, but um, I know kale is supposed to be good for you, but I don't particularly like the taste of kale either. You can get kale sort of potato, well, like potato-like chips, you know, where they cut them into thin chip-like things, and they're okay, actually. But kale's supposed to be the superfood. I even hear the snowman on here talking about kale. You know, and he, he waxes lyrically about it, but I, I've, never, I've never really found kale to be particularly tasty, but perhaps it's all in the way it's cooked. Anyway, Dan continues, as for favorite foods, that's also hard. I love delicious eats. I miss my pastas, potatoes, rice, and bread. I also miss some items with sugar. But given what I have access to as part of this lifestyle, remembering that Dan is now keto, I suppose that my favorite foods include bacon. Oh, my God. Salmon. Now, salmon's extremely good for you. Do you know the many benefits of the omega-3s that fish like salmon are rich in. It's incredibly good for your brain, and I can prove it. I find that if I eat salmon, you know, maybe two times a week or some sort of good fish two or three times a week, I feel so much better. I perform better as a chief executive, and it doesn't seem to do quite the same when you you take the fish oil supplements. So there you go. Anyway... Going through Dan's list, so we have bacon, salmon, cheeses, oh yes, and eggs. Omelettes containing many of these ingredients probably present my current favorite food. Oh, you can't beat a good omelette. Stay well, my friend. You too, Dan. And I'm glad that you are rocking the ketogenic diet. It's um, kind of cool to see some people who've you know, jumped on that keto bandwagon inspired by the show. May Thompson says, Philip, that's her son, hates tomatoes and says they are an abomination. He is always saying that every time he talks about them. Andy says, lobster with many, many exclamation marks. We used to go to Maine every year for vacation when I was younger and we ate a crap ton of lobster. That's a very strange expression, Andy. It's beautiful. It is, isn't it? Yes. Lobster's rather nice. He is Ian Lackey in sunny Scotland. No, he's not. I do this all the time. He's not. In, he's in Bognor now. Isn't that where um, Harold Steptoe wanted to go for summer holiday once? Ian says, what is the worst food in the world? In the, in the world? I've been listening to lots of... Um, SMP members today. Uh, that's an easy one. It's porridge. I might be Scottish, but I cannot stand the stuff. Mate, can you hold your head up high? No wonder you've moved. Yeah, it does remind me of a very cool little Spike Milliganer poem that I came across in the 70s. And I can't remember the whole thing. Something about why is there not a statue of porridge in our land? If it's good enough to eat, it's good enough to stand. And then I can't remember the next line. A statue we shall see. Something of pottage signed oatmeal OBE. It's a very strange little poem. Anyway, uh, that is not what Ian thinks. (laughs) 
I have been reading this week a book that has taken me away from probably other things I might be doing. Well, there is an opportunity cost of anything you do, isn't there? I have been reading the book called A Day Like Today by John Humphreys. And typically I don't listen to a lot of audio. I like to get a book from iBooks or Kindle and crank up the speech and read and sometimes read a bit in Braille depending on how I'm feeling. But when it's an autobiography and you can get it read by the author, that is when I will definitely go for the audiobook. And in this instance, on Apple Books, actually, couldn't find it on Audible where I am, but on Apple Books, I found A Day Like Today, read by John Humphreys. For those who aren't familiar, John Humphreys is a uh, very seasoned journalist. He was a foreign correspondent. Well, he started off in local, very local newspapers, became a BBC foreign correspondent, was in Washington during the Watergate affair. He eventually read the news on the telly and came to the Today program in 1987. So he was on the Today program, which is Radio 4's flagship current affairs show in the mornings, for 32 years. That's a long stint. And... He's controversial. He he had a kind of a sometimes interrogative, adversarial interviewing style. But I always enjoyed listening to him. And I loved the book because he just sounds like one of those people that you'd sit down and have a lively conversation with, even if you didn't agree with him. And you would know that he could hold his own, but that he would enjoy the intellectual nature of the argument. You know, he probably wouldn't storm off and a half will get the pip with you if you were having a a robust discussion because he just sounds like one of those people that loves the art of a good argument and it was a really really good book i can't recommend it enough there were some really cool little tricks at the beginning he interviewed himself in the in the prologue which was quite clever and he does play a few snippets from his interviewing career including an extraordinary interview that he did back in, when was this, 2012, I think it was, with the Director General of the BBC, George Entwistle. He'd been Director General of the BBC for, I think, 54 days, so just getting into the job, did an interview with John Humphreys and was gone within 10 hours of that interview. It just goes to show, um, and, and I guess I listen to these interviews now with a slightly different lens, you know, through through a chief executive's lens, and I listen to the way that leaders sometimes have to front up about difficult issues and think, how are they doing in terms of owning the issue, but feeling like they're on top of the issue? And that George Entwistle interview was just extraordinary. One thing he referenced but didn't play uh, was the thing that got him into real trouble uh, not that long ago over um, pay disparity between men and women in the BBC. And he... uh, engaged in some very unwise banter. You know, when you're in a studio and you're behind a live mic, even when you're recording, you know, you just don't know who's rolling a tape or the digital equivalent thereof. Uh, and it was very ill-advised, some of the things he was saying on that uh, that outtake, and the outtake got leaked, and it's all very unfortunate. So I had to go to the YouTube to actually hear that. Uh, anyway, it's a really good book. If you're interested in journalism and radio and somebody who was having a front seat in much of the great discourse, really, yeah, British discourse that's gone on in the last uh, 30-odd years especially, then check out A Day Like Today by John Humphreys. It's a really good book. Loved it. Hi, Jonathan. It's Sean. I just wanted to provide 
hopefully some quick thoughts about UEB, Unified English Braille, that was addressed in Episode 7. I decided for my own professional work that I needed to learn not only to read UEB, but also to write it. I wanted the notes that I take while I'm teaching to have as few translation errors from grade to, from contracted Braille sorry, uh, <laughs> into print as possible, which is one of the bigger goals that UEB had when it was being developed. And it certainly has done that now that I've learned to use it proficiently. I found a wonderful book from Braille Authority of North America at brailleauthority.org called The ABCs of UEB. And it's a book comparing English Braille American Edition, eBay or EBI or however you want to pronounce it, um, to Unified English Braille. And it has plenty of examples and explanations that make sense to me. I am not a transcriber, uh, certified or otherwise, so some of the other courses might be more beneficial for people in that regard. But as just a plain Braille user, it really did help to clarify things for me. I'm going to put a link to the page that that book is on in the email that I'm sending this in so that Jonathan can put it in the show notes. Um, Didn't want to link directly to the publication itself, and it is kind of buried in the page. So um, they have other sample documents as well you can feel free to take a look at. But this really was helpful for me. I can actually write keystrokes like Alt plus F4 and that someone typed with 97% accuracy. I've always had trouble with the literary Braille American percent, which is the dot four and then dots two five and then P. I've always thought that was a bit ridiculous. In UEB, this is the dots four six, which we would think of as our computer Braille decimal point. Um, and the and the Nemeth decimal point, and then a dropped zero. Which, if you remember that when you're working with percentages, you're moving the decimal place, that is easy enough for me to remember. So it really does help, at least in that particular situation. And I can do my emoticons, which is nice. I'm not a fan of emoji. I don't know how anybody finds anything on that emoji keyboard in iOS. It's thankfully easier to send them on the Apple Watch as replies to messages, but uh, nice to be able to do the emoticons in Braille and have them come out properly. Um, Yes, I know, I'm old-fashioned, but there you go. And it also makes listening to things like PC World on a Victor Stream or another device which is capable of rendering these files in speech much easier. So those are some of the many reasons why I like it. There are some things I don't like. Uh, number signs and how often they're used are a little annoying. But for the most part, it really does make things easier. And now that I've been using it so long, American Braille looks really strange. I can still read it. But I'm like, oh, wow, this <laughs> this looks so weird now. So hopefully that will be of some assistance to people. Um, I look forward to future episodes of the show. And wish everybody to take care.
Thank you very much, Sean. And you make a good point. Sometimes we are resistant to change because it's just new. And at other times, we know that not all change is good change. Not all change represents positive progress. But for the most part, I agree with you about UEB and um, the, the lack of ambiguity that now exists. Robin Christopherson is back, but he hasn't sent any audio this week. He's just sent some thoughts on the email. And they include things like, on the topic of Mac versus Windows, and I appreciate that this won't be for everyone, I use a MacBook with Windows running in VMware Fusion. This gives me the best of both worlds. I have voiceover running with Ava as my speech, of course. How could you not use that lovely lady? Oh, my word. As well as JAWS running in Windows 10 in the VM, Ava also. Gee, Robin. And so long as you get used to the mental gymnastics involved in using different keystrokes to drive each screen reader, plus the fact that common commands like copy and paste and a host of other ways to navigate and drive each OS are also subtly different from one to the other, then you have a seamless experience with both OSs and the benefits of both. So I can be collaboratively working on a document in Word and Windows one moment, say, and hear a text come in and hotkey to messages on the Mac side and respond then hotkey to Leary to double-check my feeds, which I am happy to report, says Robin, is almost totally accessible as a Catalyst app with the proviso that all items in the settings screen need to be clicked by first driving the mouse pointer there and then doing a manual VO mouse click. And I have emailed the developer about this And he has previously been good at responding to issues in the iOS app. So fingers crossed there. And then back to my VM. And of course, I'm back to editing the doc. Then a phone call comes in and I hotkey to FaceTime to answer it and so on and so on. You get the picture, says Robin. The only downside is that running a VM effectively halves the power of your machine as, when it's open, Windows reserves half the processor cores and memory of the host Mac. You can twiddle these settings to optimize things a bit, but there's no getting away from the fact that resources need to be shared when you have, in very real terms, two computers running simultaneously. Is it complicated? Absolutely, says Robin, and hence... Not for everyone, but you do get the muscle memory and hang of the dual approach to driving the one machine very quickly. And after that, it feels as normal as using the one environment. Is it something I'd ever go back from? Never! It's just too cool and convenient by half. It gives one the best of both worlds. Thank you, Robin. And that's exactly how I used to use the Mac when I had one for four years, I would run VMware Fusion in a window. And there are some advantages. I mean, being able to deal with your phone calls and text messages so seamlessly is very nice. 
I did ping Robin back on this. He says he's using sharp keys, and I didn't like sharp keys because a lot of people recommend using the tilde key as your JAWS modifier, and that does not work or did not work for me because so many JAWS scripts that I have use the tilde key. So by hijacking the tilde key, I really had lots of problems with multiple JAWS scripts. I mean, sharp keys let you assign any other thing, but it just, I don't know. I used a suite of tools called Carabina and I think it was Steel or Stale, Sail, 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 I think. I think it was S-E-I-L. And then just as I was getting out of Mac, there was an update to the operating system that broke those tools. I'm sure they're long fixed, but the big advantage of that was you could use the caps lock as your VO key in Mac OS. And in fact, those tools allowed you to use the caps lock key long before VO officially supported use of the caps lock key in its own right. And you could use the caps lock key as your JAWS key. I always use the laptop layout in JAWS because it doesn't disable the desktop command. So if you are sitting at a computer that has a full extended keyboard with the number pad, you can still use all your desktop commands. But you can also use your laptop commands. And when I'm using a laptop, then it all just comes naturally, you see. So I always use the laptop layout, even at a desktop and I know that Eric Damry recommends the same thing. It's just sort of sensible to do that and get the hang of it. So the caps lock key thing was a really big deal. And the demise, probably temporarily, of those tools had a big impact on me. You could also run into some trouble. One of the big problems I had was that there were a number of audio-based tools in Windows that I really liked to use. And the latency introduced by Fusion meant that that's just not practical. When you're doing really minute editing, as I often do, there was just enough latency that was introduced to the process that made it cumbersome, really just made it impossible. And there is a way you can combine the virtual machine with boot camp, I think, so that might have been possible. So yeah, in, in the end, it's all just a bit complicated. But it depends on your use case, doesn't it? It depends on what you're trying to achieve. And certainly, there are some things that I miss. Um, I miss Audio Hijack Pro. There are a couple of other rogue Amoeba tools that are really good on the Mac. And I like the seamlessness of dealing with handoff, unlocking your Mac with your Apple Watch, things like that. But in the end, it just wasn't compelling enough. Maybe if some of the glitches with Catalyst get sorted, I might be tempted to look again. You never know. Georgia from Sweden. He says, to begin with, and before I get to the question, I'm on the last update of iOS. I was editing an email and was using smart Beetle Braille display. Suddenly, speech stopped completely and the cursor on the Braille display began dancing, but I couldn't navigate anymore. I tried to restart my Braille display as I do in such situations to no avail. I exited and restarted VoiceOver with both Siri and the side button. And Siri is confirming as usual, but the Braille is remembering even when VoiceOver, the, the last state it was displaying, i.e. the last words I wrote. I am enabling voice control to try to open settings general shutdown, but no voice 
feedback. I tried connecting it to iTunes, but it is saying I must continue on the iPhone to allow sync. Yeah. Finally, I chased a sighted woman. (laughs) I see. And she confirmed my worries. The slider to shut down does not work. And not when I connect it to iTunes either to allow sync with the PC. Now I want to force it to shut down, but how, for heaven's sake? I am getting notifications from the apps on it, and it rings. Any help? Thanks. Yes, so to force reset one of these phones that have a side button rather than a home button, there is a little knack to it. What you do is you press volume up, volume down, and then hold down the side button for quite a long time. And you do it relatively quickly, but don't press them all at once. Volume up, let it go. Volume down, let it go. And then hold down the side button and the device will reset. Hope that helps. Alexander, welcome to you. Hi, Jonathan. I am listening to your podcast and I like it a lot. Oh, well, you can come back again then. We have a Spotify subscription, and I've read somewhere that the compression of the stream is quite nice in regards to high quality. So I'm using Kinney Audio loudspeakers. You may have read about them. And I have a small device connected to my digital input, which is AirPlay compatible. And when I listen to a CD and the Spotify version of the song, I hear no difference. So for me, the quality is very good. I think the compression of both is fairly similar. Spotify, I believe, could possibly be using MP3 and iTunes is using M4A and therefore you get a better sound for a lower bit rate. If sound is a factor, then I would definitely go with the lossless services like Tidal and my personal favorite Deezer. Deezer's awesome. And of course it's built into Sonos and then you get lossless. So you get no compression at all. You are right, says Alexander, regarding the family restrictions of Spotify, but time will show how they really will uh, check the addresses. Also, what I like about Spotify is that they give me automated playlists like my weekly music mix. This is a good chance to listen to new music you may come across earlier. Apple does that too now, Alexander. So you have a weekly new music mix. You have a favorites mix as well. And I think they have something called a chill mix now. So Spotify and Apple Music are similar in that regard now. So we stick with Spotify. He says... We have tested Apple Music a few years ago, and at that time, we found Spotify much better. Also, the shared playlist thing you talked about is important, as I sometimes work with others on playlists. Yeah, good to have the choice, isn't it? But uh, yeah, that, certainly the shared playlist thing is a big one. Hello from Chicago, says Holger. It is nice to hear you again. I missed your podcast. Thanks for coming back. Question regarding iOS 13.1.2 bug in the lock screen. Whenever I get a notification at the end, VO says the time. I remember this was a bug in iOS 9, I think. Some people report that this is not a bug. Do you know? 
I'm not sure I fully understand what you're asking, actually. But I do get notifications that sometimes repeat ad infinitum, which is really frustrating. And I also get some notifications where focus then goes to the status bar, and that is frustrating. And that could be what you're talking about. Focus goes to the status bar after a notification, and then the time keeps repeating itself because focus is on the status bar. I don't know why notifications are causing focus to shift to the status bar. Hey, Jonathan. Yeah, foods. Well, uh, the one I hate most is liver. That one sticks in my head, and I've hated it since you childhood. Liver sticking in your head, I was man. introduced to it upon arriving at W. Ross McDonald School for the Blind, a boarding school uh, that I went to for uh, just a couple of years. And that very first evening, uh, I don't even remember what I had for lunch. I think I did have lunch there, but I don't remember it. Uh, so the first real solid memory I have is walking into this dining room and smelling this ghastly smell. I knew it was meat. I had no idea what it was other than that. I'd never smelled anything like it, and I instantly knew I didn't didn't like it at all. And then they announced what it is. It was liver, and they brought out the meals. And I, I remember taking my first bite with the sort of faint hope that it tasted better than it smelled and discovering that, no, no, it really didn't. And I remember this big staff member towering behind me. I was maybe seven or eight at the time. He was towering over me going, eat your liver, it's good for you. And I just, I just, oh, it was horrible. Oh <laughs> man, yes, just total badness <laughs> incarnate in this this piece of awful meat. And uh, yeah, I had to basically eat that. And I, the texture of it, the smell of it, the taste, everything just, oh. I'm amazed I didn't throw up all over my plate. <laughs> oh, my word. And, uh, yeah, my favorite food is is steak. I love a good steak. It's ah, well done. Usually for medium steak. well. Uh, it's no. It's excellent with, with some spice and sauce and just yum. Yeah, a good, good, nice steak. <laughs> just uh, just totally always satisfies. It's it's always good. Um, school, I, I guess my school lunch... Uh, that, that sticks in my head uh, is peanut butter. I had tons and tons of peanut butter and lunch meat. Uh, those things were kind of the staples of you know s- sandwiches at school, and it was it was almost always sandwiches until I started buying stuff from the cafeteria and things. It was, yeah, <laughs> peanut butter, which I can't stand anymore as much. I don't mind it in things, but. Don't give it to me in a sandwich. Ooh, no, yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, yeah. looking forward to the rest of the show and what everyone else loves and hates to eat. <laughs> Bye for now. Well, I got very excited when you talked about the steak. I love a good steak as well, but you don't want to take the good flavor out of it by burning it to a crisp. Medium well is too much, man. A nice, I mean, I agree. You don't want a cold center, but as long as it's cooked through, a good rare steak is the only way to eat it. It's so tasty and delicious. Don't take all the flavor away, my boy. Mosin at Large Podcast. Live on the other mic, it's Bonnie Rosen. And hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, hello, everybody. What do you mean, everybody? It's just me you're talking to. No, they're out there listening. No, no one is listening to this. Huh, then why are we doing it? I wonder. 
How are you? Good. How are you doing? Ah, not too bad. A bit sleep deprived. <laughs> I'm sure. You might have a contribution or two on this favorite foods and least favorite yeah. foods topic. I have to agree with Michael Fair on the least favorite food. I have never liked liver. I don't think I've ever tried it because it just sounds it's, disgusting, well, it even without. Awful. It smells awful. Smells awful. Did you say? Yes, it smells awful. Awful. Yeah, because it is awful. Yeah, right. <laughs> My father loved liver. Ooh, liver and onions. What's that expression that people use? What am I? Chopped liver. Chopped liver. What does that even mean? Oh no, he liked liver. He loved liver, but mm. ugh, grilled livers, fried livers, any kind of liver. Ugh. Now, I just don't like eating the organs of an animal, like livers and kidneys and Hammond, brains Fafisa, and Elka, Yamaha. Oh. Mm. <laughs> and while we're on the subject, since you're from the south. Mm-hmm. Are you going to defend the most disgusting thing in the world that is grits? I don't like grits. Oh. I've never liked grits. Grits are disgusting, aren't they? I like they? oatmeal. Yeah. I used to call it oatmeal. 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 <laughs> but I do like oatmeal or porridge as they call it here, or yeah. muesli or something. Yeah, naked. Now, muesli is like nuts and raisins and mm-hmm. I love a good muesli. Yeah. I do love a good muesli. So you don't like grits either. No. That, that's comforting. Mm-hmm. Oh, my word. And every time I say this, you know, because I started going to the States and I think I was doing some pulse data slash humanware work somewhere in Texas or something. And they said, we've got grits for breakfast. And I said, what are grits? And they said, hey, I'll have to try some. Mercy. Yeah, they're, they're darling. And I, oh, it was just disgusting. And then every time I mention this, people say, it's just because you haven't had grits done right. But, you know, it's a bit like saying you haven't had soup done right. I mean, just... I do like soup. I have to disagree with you on soup. No, you don't have to disagree with me. You, you don't have to. I like you're, soup. You're choosing to. I like good soups. So what's your favorite food of all time? <sighs> I think chicken franchise. I like a good chicken franchise. What is that? It's like um, chicken breast and it's over pasta and it's usually done in a white wine sauce. And I think they batter it in bread. Oh my Not word. really batter it, but it has flour in it. It's delicious. Sounds mega carby. I like good Italian food, and I like Mamma good mia. Arabic food. Mm. No, I like yeah, going and having a good kebab or a mm-hmm. salad, you know, with all the ingredients. Yeah. Well, that's delicious. Yeah, I like good Arabic and good Italian. Those are probably my favorite uh, ethnic foods. Which segues us very nicely to the fact that finally you got to try a real New Zealand institution when yeah. you were in Christchurch. This is Spagalimi's Pizza. Oh, pizza. And New Zealand is much more inventive about its pizzas, don't you think? Mm-hmm. In terms of the toppings and things you can get. And my favorite Spagalimi's pizza, they do such nice crusts there. And I don't, I very seldom eat pizza now, unfortunately. But um, they have really nice crusts. It's just delicious. It's sort of handmade, homemade kind of pizza. It doesn't, doesn't taste manufactured. And they have this amazing Canterbury roast lamb pizza. Oh, it's tremendous, but I couldn't convince you to try it. Uh -uh. Mm. I had the New Yorker, which was pepperoni, and then I add and cheese, and I added capsicum, which is pepper, and olives. Can't beat olives, can you? And then I had a spinach salad with it. Does Spagalimi's get the thumbs up from you? Yeah, it's good. It's not as good as what I could get in New York, but it is good. Yeah. I mean, you just can't beat what you can get on the East Coast. Why not? Because it's 
it's delicious. Mm, right. I can't Is even it because of those huge sized pieces no, that they I have. Can't... Like... I Some honestly, of those New York pizzas that are the size of dinner plates yeah, each, each piece. The best New York pizza I had, I could not take you back there if I tried because it was in some hole in the wall up some side street. Hmm. So I couldn't find it again. Who knows what was on it? No, it was good. It was in Little Italy, but it was delicious unless the mob were putting their, you know, people on it or something. I don't know. <laughs> Soiling green. <laughs> I don't know. But it was really Roger good. Stewart, he's in New Berlin in Wisconsin. And he says, I love liver of all kinds, beef or chicken, and I love anchovies as well. A friend of mine said, I must be part cat. I also love rare steak. Yes, it's the only way to eat steak. If it is burned, says Roger, it might as well be chuck roast. Good on you, Roger. You got to eat your steak proper. Another one of my favorite foods is watermelon. I love watermelon. See, I've never liked watermelon because it just tastes like you're basically biting into water. Sort mm-hmm. of, it's it's it's. If so you tasteless. get a really good sweet one, it's good. Right. Well, I don't think I've ever tasted sweet watermelon. And I like rock. I like melon. Mm. I like berries and grapes. Yes, me too. One of the things about the condition that causes my hearing impairment and blindness, but it's, it's the hearing impairment I'm focusing on, is that there's certain types of really spicy foods that seem to trigger these sudden bouts of very severe hearing loss. And I found that you've got to be so careful. And one of the things that really does seem to get it going is jalapeno. Yeah, jalapenos. Jalapenos are good and bad because they will open up your sinuses. One of my favorite dishes. Mount Sinai. Yeah. I just think it was Mount Sinai. Um, (laughs) When I was living in New Jersey, these people that came to our church, they were from Texas, or they had lived in Texas. They weren't originally from Texas. And they would make this dry chicken jalapeno tortilla soup. And it was delicious. It was hot. It was spicy. And I remember telling them one time, if I ever get ill with a really bad cold, I just want you to bring over a big pot of this because it was a shame they didn't do that when you were so stricken in several weeks ago. Can you just send me a pot on a plane? Drop box it. Drop box it. Yes. Try to get that through biosecurity. That would be fun. It it would. Thank you, Roger, says May. I am glad at least one other person, apart from me, loves liver. There you go. As long as you like it, mate. As long as you like it, that's the important That's the thing. little what you fancy does you good. Cats like it. It's really funny when you read about cat food because I remember oh I was watching TV one night. I think I was still living in New Jersey, and I was sort of like half awake. And It says I have to breathe. Oh. And they were talking about this chicken and wild rice and broth and i'm going Ooh, that whoa sounds really and you find it's cat food and it was cat yeah. food i'm like really and, and i was telling a friend about it and they're like you should see the commercial because they have the food like in this crystal dish and they're looking at this like man that looks good <laughs> it's ah. like a cat food well of course then there's cat food from a different angle when i started going out with amanda oh no she would Always insist on going to this place. It was quite large, actually, in Manuko City. This is in the late 80s, called Hong Kong Food City. And you'd pay quite a reasonable sum, like a low sum, 
I think it was like seven or eight dollars for this all you can eat buffet. And so being students, we'd always go there. And I lived in Manudewa and she lived in Howick. So that was quite a distance between us. And she'd come and pick me up in her 1973 Ford Escort, oh, wow, which was yeah. quite a sort of a putt-putt car. Really. Yeah, it was a old putt-putt car. car. Well, it was 1987. Yeah. So, oh, 87, yeah. one too bad. Yeah, yeah. And she'd always say, oh, let's let's go to Hong Kong Food City. I love it there, yeah. And so we'd always chow down there, and then they got closed down for serving cat. So unfortunately, we we were, you can call me Chairman Meow. Oh, it's like yeah. that, that song that Bob Rivers did about there was a cat in the kettle. Yes, like that's right. It was a parody of the Harry Chapin song, wasn't it? Yes. Um, <laughs> that happened in Morristown at this place called the August Moon. And, I mean, I never ate there because it was gone by the time I moved there. But my friend Sandy, when she was in college, she said they used to go there all the time. <laughs> then they found out they were serving cats. Next month is going to be a busy old month for new movie services because we know that on the 1st of November, Apple TV Plus launches and apparently all of the content there is going to be audio described. And a little later in the month, Disney Plus launches and they have really started to promote the soup out of it. Promote the soup. There was an absolutely massive Twitter thread from them talking about all the things that are coming to this new Disney Plus. And they have a three-hour preview on the YouTube that you can watch that also previews all of these movies and shows that are coming to Disney Plus. And, of course, they also have a, they, they have quite a reservoir of material from which to draw don't they including the simpsons which they've acquired so for the first time on streaming the complete set of simpson episodes is going to be available all multiple what is it 30 odd seasons i think they're up to now so you can check out the preview of disney plus on youtube it's quite reasonably priced and it's quite generous in terms of what you get when you subscribe he is hoping for good accessibility and lots of audio description. Hello, Jonathan. This is Andy down here in North Carolina. Hi, Andy. And I just had to get in on this one because I will tell you one of the most absolute disgusting foods on the planet. Soup. Yeah! I hate soup. I hate soup. And I hate soup. I can't stand soup. I don't like soup. So there you go. I'm on your side for this, buddy. Thank you. It is nice to have a kindred spirit. It really is nice. I mean, one has to stand up for one's preferences regardless. Irregardless. Isn't that a Bushism, I think? Irregardless. But it is nice to know that I am. I have some company out there. Ooh. Oh, it's disgusting. We know that from time to time we have difficulties, whether it be with taxis or rideshare services, having our service animals accepted. And the ride-sharing companies are supposed to have a zero-tolerance policy. Normally, though, you make a complaint and they kind of just send you a message and refund you to kind of make you go away, don't they? 
at least in this part of the world, that appears to be what happens. Hopefully they follow up in a better way. If you've had any experiences with ride-sharing services and the driver's not accepting your service dog, I'd be interested to hear how you felt about what, if any, remedial action was taken. But I suspect things are about to get a bit more complicated as there's a new service from Uber called Uber Pets, and you can pay an additional fee and you can take your pet with you in an Uber. Uber drivers can opt in, so it's not something that they are required to do. And I'll be interested to see how this affects acceptance of legitimate service animals, because I think what could happen is you get an Uber who turns up and you've got your guide dog there and they say, oh, you, I can't take you because I haven't opted into the Uber pet thing. I don't want pets in my vehicle. And you say it's not a pet, it's a guide dog and they don't understand the distinction. So I think this is one that we're going to have to watch and just see how that one plays out. I don't know if Uber Pet has been introduced everywhere, whether it's being phased in, what the deal is, but uh, there could be some ramifications for guide dog users and uh, handlers of other service animals. And other news of interest of late, of course, Google had its event recently. I thought some people might have chimed in about that on the show today, but we've had no reaction. It was a little bit quiet. The Google Pixel 4 family was announced. Sounds like a nice phone, quite similar in specs to the iPhone range that was recently announced. One of the things that did catch my attention, though, was the recorder that's going to be built into the new Google Pixel. And Google's doing a lot of really interesting work with real-time transcription. They're seeing this as a benefit to the hearing impaired, but like many accessibility enhancements, it has potential use cases beyond accessibility. So many people win. And with the new recorder app that's in the Google Pixel 4, you get instant transcription and it's all done on device. So it's not dependent on you having an internet connection. And Google's dictation and transcription, it's pretty jolly accurate. So there is a similar thing that's available on the iPhone. If you buy an app called Just Press Record and they use the Siri transcription service optionally for you to get a transcription of your recording. There's another app that I've played with a little bit called Otter as in the, the creature, the sea creature otter, that does voice notes. It's designed for real-time, instant, easy transcription of meetings. And I've used it a bit, and it, it seems quite good. But in both of those cases, you need an internet connection. And certainly with Just Press Record, I have to say I haven't found the results particularly stellar in terms of the quality of the transcription. But here you have, with the Google Pixel 4, this voice recorder with transcription built in on device using the good quality transcription stuff that Google has available. That's got to be a winning feature, hasn't it? Also, a little earlier than the big Google announcement, some good news for you if you're in the Google ecosystem of smart speakers. Now, if you have Google smart speaker type devices all over your house, and you're listening, say, to a podcast or a piece of music, 
in the bedroom and you get up in the morning, for example, and you want to move that music or podcast while it's playing to your kitchen or living room, you can now give a voice command to your Google smart speaker and say, move it to whatever room it is, and it will go ahead and make the move. So that's a really cool feature. Quite a competitive space, this uh, smart speaker market, isn't it? There's lots of innovation going on. So if you are going to dive in and get a Google Pixel 4 or XL, I will be interested to hear how it goes for you. It seems like Google is doing some pretty inventive things on the hardware side. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that I lost my keys for a while. And luckily, they got handed in. I don't even know how the keys fell out of my pocket. Now I've got this great, enormous amalgamation of key rings strung together. And I popped down to the local JB Hi-Fi. And I picked up a little slim tile thing that's attached to the key ring. And I also have a tile in my wallet. And Tile are coming out with some new technologies now. People have been sort of on tenterhooks and tonterhooks waiting for Apple's rival to Tiles, which apparently are going to be these little round thingies. And you will use Tile through the Find My app, apparently, in the, uh, in the Devices tab. But they're not here yet. There's still some speculation that we may get another Apple event, possibly this month possibly in October, but October's running out, isn't it? Not too far to go before the end of it, so who knows if that's the case or not. Meanwhile, Tile is continuing to innovate, and people have been asking the Tile people, are you worried about Apple's apparent imminent arrival into this space? And the Tile people are saying, well, no, not really, because we think it will attract people to consider this product category, and we think we've got a competitive offering. So one of the new things that they've introduced is a thing called tile stickers. This is a groovy idea. I want to get a whole lot of these tile stickers. Dude! Yeah. The idea is that you affix these. They're adhesive. And you affix these to things like remote controls. Or you could stick one on your laptop if you wanted to... Make sure that you can track your laptop in another way or just anything where putting a sticker type form factor on would help you to track something. Apparently, you can take it off and reuse it, but the adhesive tends to get a little bit dodgy if you do that. So you tend to just stick it to one thing and keep it there. So these tile stickers are about 29 US dollars for a two pack. And I can see all sorts of things where you could put this on. I mean, that remote control that the kids don't put back where they're supposed to when you're hunting around for the remote control. If you've never used tile, it's gone through varying levels of accessibility over the years. Currently in iOS, it's in pretty good shape, actually from an accessibility point of view. And if you're in Bluetooth range and the range of these tiles is getting longer and longer, then you can page the tile and make it play a sound. And the sounds are getting louder and and louder as well, which for those of us with a hearing impairment is good news. Good news. You can page these things and they will play a sound. You can also page your phone from any tile as well. There's a button on the tile and you push the button 
and your phone plays this stinky little tune. Very good. Sometimes I accidentally bump the button on my key ring and the phone goes off with its stinky little tune. If you go out of direct Bluetooth range, then they crowdsource it. So when you run the Tile app and you're doing a community service, if you leave your Tile app running in the background rather than quitting it from the app switcher, then if somebody who's running the Tile app and is part of the Tile network locates your Tile, then it lets you know if you report the Tile is missing, you'll get a notification when somebody else finds it and, and it just reports the location. It doesn't let the person who's found it know that they've found a missing tile. It's all just this app running in the background collecting data on the location of things. So it's pretty good. And I do know of some people who use tiles on their guide dogs' harnesses, particularly if they have a dog that's prone to doing a bit of a runner. And that's very upsetting, isn't it? You could do it for pets. I mean, if you're listening to the Archers right now on the BBC Radio 4, if Peggy in the arches, had put a... Oh, this is going to be a spoiler for some people, isn't it? Oh, never mind. If if Peggy had put a tile on Hilda, on Hilda Ogden, we wouldn't be in the pickle we're in now. Because she'd be able to say to Kate, Dear, I've got a tile on my on Hilda. Can you open the app and find it? And then you just, you just better find it. So I'm interested in these tile stickers. I think they're out now. So if you've got one of the tile sticker packs and you've stuck it, you've affixed it to something, I'd be really interested to know how that's working out for you. And I await Apple's play into this space with interest just to see how that goes. Jonathan Mosen. Hello again, says Petra. Hello, Petra, says me. My daughter and I have these tile stickers. You were talking about the tile volume. The stickers are not very loud at all. I put one on my Roomba. And my daughter plans to put one on her tortoises. On her tortoises? As in physical animals? A guide dog wouldn't be a runner with its harness on. Fair enough. Collar maybe. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It, it would be on the on the uh, collar, not the harness. Yeah, if you've got a guide dog who's a runner with its harness on, you should send that dog back. One thing I forgot to mention when I read Robin's email is he mentioned in the email, he some of the stuff he was talking to me personally, and he kept saying, now you don't need to put this on the podcast. So I didn't. And then I realized I missed one really interesting thing that he said from the email when I read it out earlier. And that is that he has switched to Microsoft Edge as his browser of choice. And now before anybody sort of thinks, what, what? This is the Microsoft Edge beta that's publicly available. It's the Microsoft Edge Chromium beta. So if you have not heard about this, it's really interesting because Microsoft has essentially abandoned its Microsoft Edge original browser, its implementation. And aren't we all glad about that? Yes, we are. I don't know anybody who really loved using the Microsoft Edge that ships with Windows now. 
If you're a screen reader developer, you might be feeling kind of, oh, my word, you know, we've spent all this time trying to make Microsoft Edge work. And it was never a particularly good experience with screen readers. So Microsoft has now adopted the Chromium engine, which is at the heart of the Google Chrome browser. But one of the real advantages of what Microsoft has done is that, you know, I think while Microsoft Windows 10 has been pinged a bit for its privacy issues, or should I say has been binged a bit for its privacy issues, generally people feel a little safer, I think, with um, Microsoft stuff. But they have stripped back a lot of the unnecessary bloatware in the browser that does come with Google Chrome. And certainly Google Chrome has been my browser of choice for quite a long time now. And Microsoft Edge Chromium Beta is really fast. I mean, the speed with which it loads web pages, at least using JAWS and Windows 10, is phenomenal. And it's got all the features that I can think of needing. You can now, in the newer betas, install Chrome extensions from the Google Chrome store. So all those extensions that you want to use from Chrome, the big one for me was 1Password. I don't remember any of my passwords except the one that gets me into 1Password, and it's very long and mixed case and complicated. But all my other passwords are just gobbledygook gibberish that 1Password has made up for me. And when I go to a website, I hit the button, and if I haven't logged into 1Password for a while, it prompts me for that big long password, and then I'm good. I log in. And it's on all my devices. It's on my phone. It's on my iPad. It's on my various computers that I use. So having access to 1Password was an absolute essential thing for me. And that's working great. I just installed the 1Password Chrome extension from the um, Google Chrome store in this new Chromium beta version of Microsoft Edge. Well, it's been around a while, actually, to be fair. But it's stabilizing all the time. And I reckon that if you're interested in getting the best browser experience, you should give it a try. I'm really impressed with what Microsoft has done with this. Super duper fast, accessible, and you can log in with your Microsoft ID into Microsoft Edge on your phone if you get the browser on your phone as well and everything will sync across your devices and you can be browsing something on your phone and then you can pick it up on the PC and all that kind of stuff. So it's worth checking out. They've done a very good job and they must surely be ready to drop it in an official sense, surely, because it's in pretty good shape. I know people get nervous about betas, but remember, it doesn't really override anything. It keeps your existing Microsoft Edge if you are using that for whatever reason, and you can still use your existing browser. If you have Google Chrome, then installing the beta of Microsoft Edge with the Chromium engine doesn't override your Google Chrome. They may have a little debate with you about which one should be the default browser, but I've now set Microsoft Edge Chromium Beta as my default browser, and it's rocking. It's rocking. Thanks for being a part of episode eight of Mosin at Large to be in touch. Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com with an audio attachment or just write an email down or call the listener line 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736.